You're listening to the Own the Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from C-Link interviews experts on how SME developers and contractors can transform their business through intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Own the Build with me, Paul Hemming, and I've got a great guest today. So today's episode is called Keeping Your Pipeline Full, and we're joined by a man who quite literally knows how to do it by all accounts. I'm delighted to introduce to you uh, Jack Jiggins. He is both a developer and an investor at XP Property. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you very much, Paul. Good to uh, good to be on here. I've listened to uh, quite a few episodes, and I feel very fortunate that I can come on and share a bit about where I'm probably better. But there's uh, a lot of other areas that I've been picking up and learning from from this podcast and others. Ah, oh, you're too kind. That's very kind of you, Jack. Now, the big question on my lips, having started this conversation with you, is: I see you're a man who likes to drink orange squash because you're on dry January or or whatever your excuse is. I like squash as well. What's the best squash flavour out there? Oh, good question. Um, unfortunately, I know a really sad answer to this. Waitrose do a grape and elderflower. Oh, crikey. It's called a grape and elderflower high juice. And it is it is something special. If you get if you get a one of those, you're going to go through it pretty quickly. Yeah, that's my favourite. <laughs> well, I, t- I tell you what, you know, that makes my orange and pineapple Robinsons sound like a... Uh, a complete joke. So I think we should almost, I'm almost tempted to say we should wrap up this episode now. Everyone pop off to Waitrose, go get yourself some grape and elderflower because it does sound good. Apart from being the savviest man in town on the squash front, tell us about yourself, Jack. Introduce yourself, your business and, and what you do. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. I suppose it was inevitable that I would be in property um, at some stage. My grandfather ran his own construction company and my dad was a builder and what I call accidental developer, which is someone that decides to build houses and realizes that there's a bit of profit at the back end. So every house that I lived in as a child, uh, my dad built. My mum always uh, brings up a funny story uh, when I was about three or four years old and she couldn't find me. And I was three stories up on a scaffolding with like a gone out cigarette butt in my mouth, pretending I was a bricklayer, Um, (laughs) which is not what you want your four year old. Quite the side. Yeah, yeah, which is not what you want your four-year-old son doing. So um, that was like me at a very early age, always grew up. We actually quite often lived in porter cabins inside the garden of the of the houses that my dad was building. But out the back of that and out the back of school, I went to university and studied business and marketing. Once I had finished uh, my degree, I worked within a um, recruitment company, so basically in 360 sales, so sourcing uh, jobs and placing leads, which built up my sales acumen pretty quickly. It was pretty intense training. I wouldn't necessarily say it was my calling, uh, hence why uh, I'm not there now. But out the back of that position, I had multiple businesses and side ventures that I was basically doing. So I'd set up a gym because I spotted an opportunity in my local town. Uh, I had a meal prep company prepping meals. I also had a small buying and selling business. So I was trading but basically anything on eBay. So whether that was buying in from China and selling in individual unit items or alternatively buying low and selling high on things that I know are worth more than what they're selling for. And also I had a very low key sort of market uh, gardening business where I'd, you know, I'd spot where someone would post on Facebook, I need a gardener. I would 
give them a price and then I'd bring in the labor cheaper and I'd mark it up. So all, all of this was sort of like my entrepreneurial flair getting, um, keeping it busy, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I eventually just thought to myself, I know property, uh, I know it fairly well. And I think one of the biggest reasons it took me a while to go from someone with a degree that works in an office to go back onto site was I didn't feel that, if I'm honest, I didn't feel like I was at that level. I, I would have been the most qualified laborer in, in Oxfordshire. And it took me a while to make that transition. But once I did, uh, I never looked back. So I then went into building houses, basically. Some developers might roll their eyes when I say this, but I get the impression that some developers don't like the idea of having muddy boots on site. Given what you've just described, sound like you're quite the opposite. Sounds like something that you were accustomed to from from minute one. Is that something you enjoyed? Do you like seeing the project come together on site? Yeah, so um today I don't I don't really do much on the tools work. I'm all, I'm on site. Oh, quite a lot. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we I've we've got to the stage where we we get a principal JCT contractor on board, and and it, it would actually hinder the project. With me getting on there and trying to swing about a hammer, pretending I still know what I'm doing. Whereas back when I left, you know, the office, I was on site, and we built me and a, one my partner at the time built several houses just from the ground up, did everything. So I was very much getting my boots dirty without a choice. If I can get my boots dirty out of choice, I love it now. It's it's a it's a lovely privilege to have, whether it's go and help people on certain stages of the build, see it from the ground up. You spot things that you don't spot from a desktop, which I think is key. And it is, and ca- I, I can see a, a lag where that's actually going to slip over the next few years where people just got so accustomed to not being present. And I think there will be small gaps of cost savings and, and value enhancing that people aren't making. But I'm used to getting my boots dirty and, and I, I think that will that will be indefinitely. Excellent. And so you've had, for such a young man, you've had quite the career to date. And I see that your current business, XP Property, was nominated for two awards. Just before we jump in, tell me a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, of course, of course. So I'd start off with the businesses. So when I started building houses from the ground up, we did, uh, I think we did about a dozen projects end to end and sold those on. And it got to the stage where I was so fed up with actually being on the tools and working through winter and so on and so forth. Bit of a diva, really, you could say. So I wanted to be work smarter and, and not harder, uh, which is where the sort of brainchild of XP Property came. So in 2018, I set up XP Property with Ben, who you've also interviewed uh, on the podcast before. And at the, in the same year, I set up a company called Central Suites, which is shared with my brother. And that's more of a lettings and rental business. But XP Property itself is we like to call ourselves an SME property development business in the south of the UK. We're extremely dynamic. We're extremely confident to challenge areas of the market. Um, and we've loved growing that business from what it was in 2018, buying our first project in in, in March, to now delivering uh, between 15 and 20 million pounds worth of, of schemes. The business delivers anything from- Very nice. Yeah, anything from residential, commercial, mixed use, land, uh, planning, um, and it's all within the sort of south of the UK, which is keeping us busy. Um, but more about the more about the the awards. So we were very fortunate to be nominated by someone you've actually interviewed, actually, uh, for these two awards. One. Oh, blooming hell! I know. Small world. Small world. Who is it? Helen. Helen surely kindly uh, nominated us for the oh, two okay. awards. Yeah, yeah. So she. I, I mean, she. she we gen- love Helen. Yeah. Everyone loves Helen. 
she's she yeah great reputation in the property <laughs> world especially the personal side of things she well she she actually said that 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 she thought we would we would be a good contestant in one of the categories we decided to go for um development of the year and hmo under six beds of the year um we came second and the runner-up in the development scheme but hands up we got beaten by a very very good development and that was a 14 mixed use scheme in reading which was seven flats seven offices it's got a bit of everything in it if we have time to delve into that i could tell you about how we did asset management planning commercial conversion commercial building resi building all of the above and the hmo award we we're really pleased to say that we won that so we won under six bed hmo of the year uh, which is a property we own in in oxfordshire and it's uh Comically, since we won the award, we've actually also just got planning on it to extend it as well. So maybe we should resubmit it this year. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So it's, it's destined for success. It's destined for success. So my final, final question, I keep on saying it's my final question before we talk about the topic that I want to talk about. You're a property developer. What is a common myth or misconception about your job, do you think? Really good question, actually. I would, I would I'd say there's there's two the, I think the, the most uh, common misconception is that developers are greedy and I hear it all the time estate agents say it to my face banks say it to my face surveyors say it to my face and I'm like and, and, and my sort of response really is you know a, a property developer is fundamentally someone that orchestrates you know the orchestra and everyone has their opinion and normally when you hear that, it's because the people in the orchestra want to be orchestrating, but they haven't. They don't want to put in the hard work. They don't want to take the risk, and they don't know what. Don't, they don't know or how take to take the it. risk. Yeah, it, exactly. So um, that's my first common misconception. I don't know a single property developer. Not greedy, I, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I don't know a single property developer that I don't think is doing well in the last sort of five to ten years that isn't a hard worker. Um, and smart, so I think that's a that's an unfair assumption. Uh, the second one is, I don't want to sell, sound all salesy here, but you need loads of money to do, do developments. <laughs> yeah. So the the second myth I think is that you need loads of money to do developments. I I don't think you necessarily do. Uh, you need the expertise, and you know, you need to know how to deliver them. You need to know how to structure them, and you need to know how to find them. And if you can do that and be transparent and trustworthy i think that there's funds out there to help you get into developments if you if you wanted to now jack you're doing your you're doing my job for me that is the most beautiful <laughs> eloquent segue onto the topic of conversation right it's how you don't need you just need to know how to find projects and how to deliver them so we're going to talk about managing your pipeline growing a pipeline of projects, developments that you can work on. Why is that so important to you? You talk about it a lot. I do, I do. So when Ben and I came together, we very quickly realized that we definitely had a different skill set in the business. I'm very process driven, extremely organized, quite a strong sales acumen going into the business. I like the sort of chase, if that makes sense. And Ben is very much heavy on the design and delivery of projects. You know, if if Ben won the lottery tomorrow, he'd still be building two-bed semi-detached houses because he loves it. <laughs> uh, and that's Ben all over. He just loves property and creating property. 
So what we decided to do was split the business and have a have an ethos of divide and conquer. We see uh, developer partnerships all the time where they both follow each other around and do the same thing, but they just do it together. We're not of that elk. We sometimes don't speak for a week. Uh, and we'll be like, oh, by the way, I need you to do this. This project's where this, and we check in on those bases. So my part of the business is acquisitions, and that's why it's so important for me, but it's obviously really important for any development business. So I suppose I get asked two questions more than any other question. One of them is, how do you find deals? And the other is, how do you fund deals? Now, we could probably do a four-hour podcast on each of those individually, but we're today focusing on finding deals. But the most important thing to remember, if they're the most two commonly asked questions that I get asked, second to that, I always go back and say, if you find a good deal, it will fund itself. People look at it and be like, well, the deal works. I just got to get the right the right jockey. So it's like all about the horse and the jockey component. So the developer is the jockey, uh, not in any other sense other than riding a horse and the, and, and okay. the deal is and the deal is is obviously the the horse so in principle i believe if you find the right deal with the right delivery team it will fund itself you'll be able to find funding partners so now now like delving into why that makes sense yeah brilliant i mean you would back a deal that you're so what like, is your process exactly 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 so it's obviously extremely important for us to find projects because we are property developers if we don't find them we're not developing anything and the business shuts down and we all move on and become whatever whatever our other ben would be on homes under the hammer i'd probably be a stunt stunt man but you you need developments to be running a development business right and they need to be profitable and one of the hardest thing is it, one of the hardest things about finding a development is there's so much noise and alloc- and putting a spotlight on ones that actually work and then the second part is de-risking it and making it work. So we have a very organized process and I'm such a creature of habit, it's ridiculous. I love monitoring irons in the fires and, and all sorts. And we have a really robust, in our opinion, process. And I, I hope for listeners out there, so we've been running our businesses for four years now. And across the businesses, we've averaged a purchase every six weeks. Um, and that's sites and properties, which is... I, I, I actually don't know anyone of our size that's 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 matching or or exceeding that. So we've always been. So known. how are you doing it, Jack? You've <laughs> got to tell us. <laughs> that's what it's coming. What's your it's process? Coming. It's, in, coming. In all it's coming. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm excited. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Good, good, good. So I'm, I mean, I'm like Mr. Process in a process in a process. I'm a bit like those Chinese dolls that you open up, where like I will tell you a bit and then there's a lot more to it so <laughs> we can sort of delve into any of these in, in any more detail but the most four important things to finding successful property schemes is knowing what you want so i'll give you an example what we want is schemes in the south of the uk probably within an hour or two of where i live um that are between one and 20 units that's it and that could be a plot of land that has scope between one and 20 units that could be a mixed use building that could be an air rights it could be anything have a process is the second one and it's down to you as a developer to build your own process because my process won't work for you and vice versa because i'm looking for different things sounds like your sounds like your process might work for me to be honest with you jack if you're getting one every six weeks (laughs) yeah i mean happy to share happy to share um the third and it's a bit of a cringy one but it's trust the process i see all the time where someone goes out and views sites for six months 
And then they say to me in month nine, they haven't got any deals. And I said, well, what have you done over the last three months? And they say, well, I gave up because it didn't work. And I'm like, well, you probably just got to the point where you've broken inertia. You're starting to get a name for yourself. Agents are starting to send you stuff. And you're probably a week away from actually like re realizing the, the juice from that squeeze. So I trust the process of point number three. And then point number four, which you're going to love, is just putting the work. It's not easy. Um, you've got to work hard. You've got to be on your numbers. You've got to be on your process. You've got to be on your organization. You've got to know what's what, what's where, who you should be speaking to. And that's all fed into your process. So that's like our real like motive process. But I can go into more details of actually how we find them. So we break that process down by categories of on market. Again, another four, four step on market, off market, which could also be known as direct to vendor. Uh, if you're contacting someone directly about their land or their planning or whatever it may be, your own network. So people that are on these calls that I know and people that you communicate with, we often have people approach us and go, like, I've got this deal. I, I don't really know how to do this, this and this. And that's where you can quite easily hijack that acquisition process and jump on board a scheme that's already been uh, uh, secured. And the fourth and most important one and the one that we have the most success with is revisiting your previous pipeline. So all the deals that you've looked at before and offered on and weren't successful, follow those up. 34% of deals that go under offer to exchange fall through. So if you keep tabs on those deals, you're very, very likely to secure. And we're exchanging on one in two weeks. 34%. Yeah. It's a good metric. Really interesting that is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? To know to know that, to know that one in three offers that have gone that have gone you can potentially warm back up that is very interesting exactly the best thing about those deals as well is the agent can't be bothered to do another load of round of viewings the seller's more distressed because they've probably wasted between two and six months in in the legals process getting the run around that they maybe they've pulled out because of funding or uh, an obscure element exactly so it's only going to be better um so we love following up on those i would have said 40 to 50 percent of our deals is secured by follow-up Really? That's really interesting. And this whole conversation is very interesting, Jack. And after the break, I want to talk to you a little bit more about qualifying and how you pre-qualify, kind of that first point that you made. But we'll do that just after this break. Go grab some squash. Own the Build is brought to you from our sponsor, C-Link. Software used by developers and main contractors to manage subcontract procurement in one place. Find subcontractors, automate tenders and contracts, control construction program, compare prices, and improve project profitability with C-Link. To find out more, head to c-link.com. Now back to the show. So, Jack, I run my own business. I work on a sales team within that business as well. And to us, qualification of prospects is a big part of what we do in that we are looking for a certain characteristic of business in a certain region, and they need to be doing certain functions. And you kind of alluded to that a little bit yourself about your first step where you what do you want? So you said that you wanted to have projects in the south of the UK 
one to 20 units only. What were the steps that you came to arrive at that decision? So the, the one to 20 units is, is specifically the size that we want to be dealing. So we want to fall in the catchment of accidental developer or architects that get really confident or people that want to run their own schemes like Grand Design and the big home builders like Red Row, Bewley, Berkeley Group, Taylor Wimpy, all of the big home builders. We want to fall within that catchment in between so that we're securing those medium ground sites. So that's how we choose, choose, want, want the size because that's within that catchment that we're aiming for. And then location is just purely because we live in the South. We want to be able to sort of feel these assets. The best thing about investing in real estate and doing developments is you can see it. It's not like cryptocurrencies or or, or the FTSE 100. It's You can see it. It's a, it's a plot of land. You can put charges on it. It's tangible. Um, so we want stuff down South. Now, we, we love staying down South because when I went through several events and courses and and I don't want to name the few where it's ha ha. Proper rah, rah. southerners aren't yeah. <laughs> well, uh, anywhere enough, north of the Watford Gap is getting a bit scary, isn't it? If I'm really honest, north is like past Oxford for me. So I yeah I yeah try. that's true. Okay, you're like a I'm I'm from I'm from Warwickshire originally, so Oxfordshire is kind of like the middle ground on the way down to the big smoke for me. But um, yeah, I guess you're more Midlandsy, but you're on the south side of the Midlands, I'd say. Exactly, but um. When we when when I was sort of setting out, I heard time and time again like you got to go up north to get double digit yields. You got to go up north because it's affordable. If we're building sites and adding bricks to land, the more value per square foot, the better for us. So staying in affluent, high value areas is why we stay down south. So that's how we qualified that. That that's what we need and what we what we look for. And it seems seems like you have a a finite understanding of exactly what you want, which must help you find what you want much more easily because you know exactly what you're looking for. And you then have a great process to get you there. So then the next step, and you mentioned you were in recruitment and kind of in sales roles and you were interested in sales roles. Is there something that you are understanding once you get to that stage where you've identified the site where you're exploring like the seller's wants, the seller's needs, and like their psychology that is then helping you to attack opportunities in a different way. Yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, there's, I think there's two points to pick up on there, and I love that you've brought that up. You're talking my language. But so on, on, on the topic of you saying you know what you want, I try and keep it really, really short and sweet and punchy because if you can't deliver that sentence effectively to estate agents, fellow business people, your employees, whoever it is, how are they How are they then going to replicate that into a market or to a vendor or look for it and think of you when they're looking for those things? So that's why the, 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 the requirement has got to be really short, sharp and punchy and memorable. And then moving more on to your point of motivation. For example? So yeah, south of England, one to 20 units. How can an agent forget that? If it's outside of that, I don't <laughs> want it. That's true. Okay, fun. That is simple. Now, when it comes down to uh, motivations, which is something that I love analysing because it gets deals done. And realistically, little secret here for everyone, someone selling an asset or a plot of land or a property will only be motivated by one of two things, time or money. And that's it. And it's literally a direct correlation sliding scale that you can then adapt your offer to suit their needs. So what we do to account for that and understand their motives 
if we can't do it by questioning and open questioning with with uh, with some direct questioning in there, and sometimes we get shown, shown sites that we're not directly in contact with the owner or the agent hasn't done a very good job of of pre-qualifying them, is we do something called a dual offer, which is offering one which is unconditional. So this is the price we'll pay you to do the deal and get it tied up. And that's the one when they're time motivated. So they want it done soon. And then the second offer will be something more creative. Like we'll take a while, but we might get planning or we might kick this tenant out and refill it with this tenant or we'll exchange now and complete in three years. And in that time, we want to do a bit of asset management. That offer is someone that's more money motivated and less and, and less time motivated, more patient. And that normally starts a conversation where they come back and go, we prefer offer B, but we don't like this, this and this. And then we start negotiating and, and fine tuning it. Are you always offering, I'm not sure, maybe I've misunderstood, is there always an A and a B when you're going, or are you understanding their position and then going either A or B? Yeah, so if we don't know their motivation, we always offer both. It's one of those comical ones where your unconditional offer makes your conditional offer look better anyway. Because they otherwise the unconditional could look offensive if, if you come in half of what the guide price is. So if we don't know their motives, we always offer both. Uh, and then it t- they tend to sort of delve into a bit more detail of what they prefer. If we know their motives, we sometimes don't mess around with the complication of them having to read the conditions of the, you know, of the others. But um, that makes perfect sense. And is there a step in between? So if you don't know their motive, you may offer A and B, right? But if are you also, is it better to know their motive? Are you trying to get that middle ground where you can engineer in some way, get extracting the information so that you can then really understand what's motivating them and how do you do that? Yeah, so we, we 100%, if you can find out, the more information, you know, knowledge is power, the more information you have, the easier it's going to be for you to adapt and, in, and ensure that your offer is best received. Um, and we normally do that by asking the, you know, reasons for selling, um, why they wouldn't wait such and such time for the for the planning to play out. And sometimes it's like they need to pay off a loan of 55 grand. And then you can go, well, we'll pay off that loan. We'll make the, the deposit uh, accessible by the seller. And we'll then, you know, do the deal later on. You can sometimes save costs uh, in-house by doing that. Um, but the motives are key. So we, we, we try and find out through the agent or we try and get a conversation with them directly if we can. And most of it is just by, you know, just from speaking to them, build a bit of rapport standard stuff that you're probably doing in your business and just really understand their reasons behind it um, and why they need to sell or want to sell. And sometimes they just turn around and be like, well, I thought it was valuable and I just want the best price, in which case you go, well, if you're patient and wait two years for planning permission, the site's going to be worth more and I can pay you more. But for us, that de-risks it because we don't get the planning. We can walk away from it. I can see, Jack, I can really start to see now why you have such an impressive pipeline of deals that I'm sure you're growing, but also what you've achieved in the first four years of your business, the average of six per week. It's really, really impressive. And I I guess you kind of sit in a really unique kind of like set of experience in that you have this really robust construction background that you grew up with as a kid. You then went into sales and now you're in property. Is there, and I'm wondering whether there's a huge amount of property developers with such a sales focused mind i do you read books around sales is it something that you're really focused on as do you think that's giving you a big cutting edge 
I actually think the biggest cutting edge I've had is probably from the sort of intensive training uh, that I had in the sales company. And it's a bit of a boring answer because no one on that's listening can go and jump into that company and be like, right, I'd, Jack said um, that I could come in here and get some really good training to do it <laughs> and then piss off and be a really good developer. But I, I, do, I do like reading. I do enjoy, I think, entrepreneurial or self-development books is such a great way of someone uh, you know, basically utilizing 15 or 20 years worth of someone's experience and jam packing that into a book. But I, d- I haven't actually really got any books that I'd recommend for sales, but I, I do have two recommendations of books that I think are really effective for, it could be any business owners or developers or anyone in construction or uh, even sourcing sites. <clears throat> the first one is Your Life, Your Legacy, which is a profile driven book uh, written by roger hamilton and it basically analyzes who's who so everyone has a personality type and everyone's naturally gifted at certain things and the best team is a team playing off their strengths it's like when you set up a football team and the big lumpy guy that's tall and good at heading sits at the back at center back and the fast people sit on the wings now if your team can't analyze that and it's very difficult for people in business to analyze what they're good or bad at without it being you know, a scorecard on speed, agility, you know, control, passing. It's very difficult to analyze. Are you good at acquisitions? Are you good at running numbers? Are you good at forward planning? Are you a, are you a, a creative? So the first book is is Your Life or Legacy. It tells you your profile and helps you understand others. I'd get most of our staff to read that book because it helps them understand why a colleague can't do the things as quickly as they can and why they're slower at certain things than colleagues. So that's the first one. And that has does bring out your sort of sales and, and help you analyze it, what you're naturally good at. Uh, and then I suppose the, the, the other book that, that I got recommended uh, is Traction, which is, I think, a phenomenal book to really understand, like to understand. I've read what, that. Actually. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book. Um, understand the sort of cogs that you can improve in your day to day, month to month, annually, desk and, and business life. You're an interesting, interesting man, Jack. You certainly are. I have one final question for you. So talking on the topic of one of your latest projects and putting putting that project into your mind, if you could turn back time and talk to yourself at the start of that project and tell you to do something different, what would you tell yourself? Oh, wow. That is such a good question. It would probably be one of the projects that I delivered on the tools and it would probably be stop using your hands and start using your head sooner because I had I had quite a long period of time where I wasn't enjoying delivering houses with my hands but I knew I was learning and I was sort of anticipating in 10 years time I might run a development business but I could have done it you know started on it the tomorrow and and worked on that in the tomorrow so it's got nothing to do with a particular project that went wrong right or indifferent uh, because projects come and go and every project that you do you learn from uh, and has a different purpose in your in your growth for for that reason you actually learn more from projects that go wrongly than rightly so i i think that the activity is the important thing that's um, why i like to ask that question yeah yeah but the, the the one thing i would say to me is uh buck up your ideas start studying start attending more events start meeting with more people that are doing where you want to be uh and and get off the tools sooner would be my my advice to myself Wonderful. Well, Jack, you have been fascinating to chat to. Thanks for so much for coming on the show. I'm going to share 
your details, XP Properties details in the podcast description. And get in touch with Jack. You guys know that he knows what he's talking about after that. It's really, really interesting, Jack. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Absolute pleasure. And give me your address because I want to send some uh, some high juice from Waitrose your way. Oh, now we're talking. On that note, guys, I will see you all next week. Nice one. Cheers, Paul. Thank you.